Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damien Garde. It's Thursday, June 15th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. A handsomely funded startup billed as Moderna 2.0 ran into behind-the-scenes problems with its scientific data. STAT's Allison DeAngelis joins us to share her reporting on a cautionary tale in biotech. And Biogen is in the news. Again, we'll discuss the boardroom scandal that has roiled a company that was supposed to be entering a new era. We'll also talk about the latest news in the life sciences. But first, a word from our sponsor. What does operational inefficiency look like in clinical trials? For sponsors, it means lagging patient recruitment and no way to see enrollment barriers. At research sites, it looks like manual paperwork jamming the enrollment process. One study team's mission is to accelerate the development of new and life-saving therapies by bringing clinical workflows online. This enables sites, sponsors, and stakeholders to work together on a common cloud-based platform, Study Team. The result? Efficient workflows, increased enrollment, visibility into enrollment barriers, and one clear path to faster therapeutic development. Learn more at onestudyteam.com slash stat. That's O-N-E studyteam.com slash stat. So as we speak, I feel like I have some version of this phrase on the podcast every week now, which is that (laughs) something is happening and when you listen to it, you may know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not even going to try it because like temporal reality is escaping me at the moment. As we speak, there is an (laughs) FDA meeting taking place with implications for the ongoing response to COVID-19. Meg, what is happening? Yeah, the um, FDA's panel of vaccine advisors is talking today about what the COVID boosters should look like in the fall. And I think we're planning on really deep diving into this next week. So essentially right now, we just wanted to acknowledge that this is happening, but then get to the rest of our episode because we have two extremely interesting stories to discuss that we want to take a little more time on. Um, So I'm just going to turn it over to you guys on the Biogen story because I was coming back from Boston actually from interviewing the CEO of Biogen, Chris Viebacher, when the news hit that there were going to be major changes on Biogen's board. Adam, Walk us through what the changes are first. Right. Yeah, this was a sort of a shocking news announcement that Biogen issued uh, late on Monday night. Um, the company said that its longtime you know, sort of polarizing director, uh, 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 an investor by the name of Alex Denner, was going to be stepping down from its board. And, you know, at first it seemed like that would be sending a kind of a signal uh, to the to investors that you know the a lot of the a lot of the problems that the companies had and the and the strife that the companies had on its boardroom might be coming to a close. However, um, named as Alex Nenner's replacement on the board was uh, a biotech executive by the name of Susan Langer, who just happens to be Alex Denner's live-in uh, romantic partner and the mother of uh, his child. Uh, which uh, we, Damien and I, I, I guess we reported that exclusively, Damien, um, based on information that we had gathered. Um, the fact is, it's a kind of a messy situation. Uh, you know, Alex Denner leaves the board of Biogen. He names his own replacement to the board, who just happens to be uh, his romantic partner. Uh, Alex is also in the middle of a protracted divorce from his wife of nearly 25 years. Um Susan Langer is also sort of a contentious uh, 
issue in, within that divorce, which is still ongoing. So again, lots of mess. Uh, you, you sort of thought that Biogen had sort of turned the page uh, with a new CEO, Chris Viebacher. Things were kind of going in a new positive direction. And, and then here we have this uh, budding boardroom scandal. And it was interesting watching their reaction evolve to this news because the initial reaction among people who didn't know the backstory um, of Susan Langer's connection to Alex Denner uh, was, you know, this is a refresh. Like, this is a, a new start. There had been a lot of concerns that, you know, the board was not interested in allowing Biogen to do deals. That was something that Wall Street wanted perhaps to see. And I heard from people, I was sort of curious, I wasn't going around telling people about the connection myself, but I was just asking people what they thought of the changes. And the responses I was getting back was like, fresh start, you know, and I saw some analyst notes to that effect. But then, you know, the news came out, Endpoints reported it, the relationship. Uh, you guys came out with the story with much more background about it um, and revealed more details for the first time. And I think, people have just wondered why wasn't there disclosure here? Damien, what did you guys learn from people about the appropriateness of how Biogen just handled the disclosures of that uh, relationship? Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I spoke to a few um, professors of law specifically who, who study corporate governance. And at least legally, there doesn't seem to be an issue here because – Langer is not conflicted in the sense that she's not a non-independent uh, board member. If if she had a romantic relationship with, for example, someone in the management team of Biogen, that would be a problem legally. But it gets down to kind of a letter of the law versus spirit of the law thing. And and the point that was made to me multiple times is that the not disclosing this, I mean, one, it, it kind of violates a principle in this stuff, which is like the reasonable person doctrine. Would a reasonable person, in this case a shareholder, think that this information was important before making a decision as to whether to elect this person to the board of Biogen? I think we as reasonable people <laughs> could conclude that such a reasonable person might think that this information was important. But then more broadly, board members are fiduciaries. Like now we're kind of getting into the theory of publicly traded companies. But briefly, they're, they're fiduciaries. They act um, on behalf of shareholders uh, in terms of making decisions for the company. And so the most integral thing imaginable is trust. If I'm a shareholder, I have to believe that each member of this board is behaving in a trustworthy manner. And so to, I don't want to say conceal, but to omit this information from the documents that Biogen put forward in nominating Langer to the board, I think a Again, I don't know who this imaginary reasonable person is, uh, but anyway, I think it's reasonable to say that that trust was not upheld. And then, you know, getting beyond the the personal connection to Alex Denner, I think that you know Susan Langer is a 32 year old who has worked in biotech for um, since college and worked at Biogen for some time and been um, involved in a few startup companies since leaving Biogen in 2019. I don't think it is again taking away all of the the personal connection to to a board member who's already there i don't think it's unreasonable to say that those qualifications are not comparable to the qualifications and the experience of the other members of biogen's board um langer has not been a, a board member of a publicly traded company ever before 32 is uh she'd be two decades younger than anyone else on the board so then when you add in the undisclosed connection to Alex Denner, I think that's where, you know, we spoke to um, some former Biogen executives, that's where their shock uh, was a word that came up quite a bit, 
uh, comes from with respect to this announcement. And then I think there was kind of a sense of embarrassment. Um, you know, when you zoom out, it looks... What's the word? I, I, it looks unprofessional, I guess. Tawdry? You know, to, to people. We, Tawdry? Is that, a, is yeah, that the word? I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 don't, I want to be careful about choosing adjectives. Not good is, is one I think it fairly <laughs> boils down to. And I think, you know, zooming out with Biogen, it's a very influential company. It's been around for a long time. It's one of the original biotech companies. It's a linchpin of the Cambridge biotech sector, which is or, or cluster, which is the biggest one in the world. And as a result, it has employed a lot of people in biotech. Um, who either no longer work there or bounce back and forth, as Langer herself has. And those people have, uh, the way one person put it to me, reporting out a different story about a different kind of embarrassing thing by Agenda Done years ago, is that it's like your college sports team. You will always root for them. They do things that make you cringe. You get upset. You know, you talk to your fellow alma mater or your fellow alumni about whatever it is that's bothering you. But there is a there's a desire among a large group of people for Biogen to succeed, to do well, to maintain its independence, and to right the ship um, after the sort of disastrous last five years. And so something like this just feels like a setback, I think, in the minds of a lot of people of like, ah, this was supposed things were supposed to be different now. Yeah, and we talked to people inside Biogen, you know, who expressed frustration to us because I think they genuinely felt like the company is starting to move in a better direction. You know, that um, the appointment of Chris Viebacher as the CEO has, I think has been, you know, people have been uh, happy with with what he's said and what he's done in, you know, in, in early on in his tenure. And inside the company, I think there was a feeling that this is, again, a fresh start. Um, I think they see the board refresh that, you know, that you mentioned, Meg, as, as a, another positive uh, move. But a lot of this seems to maybe at risk of being unraveled or overwhelmed by this sort of personal uh, relationship between Alex Denner and Susan Langer and that conflict and sort of the lack of disclosure. And I think that's something that they, that, that when people who spoke to us, you know, expressed frustration over. Hmm. What did Biogen's PR department tell you guys when you knocked on the front door, um, you know, about what it knew about the situation and how it decided to share the information? Maybe we should share a little bit of, I don't know, a little inside baseball about all of this. We all knew about the relationship that Alex Denner was having with Susan Langer. Uh, we've known about it since last year. Uh, we've known about the divorce since last year. Uh, it's information that we had heard about. Uh, you know, Damien and I, you, you and I uh, obtained the 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 divorce court records um, to, to that that mentioned Susan Langer in there. We this is information that we that was publicly available. We obtained, but you know, we never wrote about it because we don't tend to write about personal matters, and it, and that information was not germane to our biotech coverage. So it's just information that we had at our disposal, but we, you know, I, I literally filed the, the papers in a desk drawer and, and that's where they sat until Monday night. All of that information became very relevant to our coverage of Biogen. And, and that's, that's what, uh, you know, that formed the story that we, that we reported uh, on Tuesday morning. And, and yeah, you know, <laughs> getting back to what you said, but yeah, we did, yeah, obviously we went to Biogen and asked them for comment. And I think that they told us that they knew about the, that Biogen knew about the relationship. I don't know if they knew the extent of what happened. Then I don't know if they knew about the the child and, or how sort of nasty the divorce was between Alex and his, and his wife. We asked them, we wanted to know like why they chose not to disclose 
any information about the relationship between Alex and Susan. We felt like that was something that was really important. We wanted to understand maybe whether it's a legal, there was similar legal doctrine or legal opinion that there are, that Biogen's attorneys had given the company and the board, like why that wasn't something that should have been disclosed. And and we, we they have not provided us yet with, with uh, any explanation. You know, one person I was talking with just about their reactions to this story pointed out if Cerisi Capital, which is Alex Denner's fund, had nominated Susan Langer to Biogen's board as the sort of designee from the fund, which owns, you know, some significant amount of the stock, um, it, while disclosing perhaps the relationship, that may have been considered, you know, whereas people might have noted the relationship and maybe talked about it or whatever, at least it would have all been disclosed and it would have made, perhaps made sense to folks and everything would have been really upfront. Um that didn't happen. I mean, do you guys think there's any situation in which this could have been done in a way that people would not have reacted the way they are? I think that what you just described, I think the reaction definitely would have been less negative. Um, as I said before, I think, you know, one could question Langer's qualifications just as a board member for a company the size of Biogen with like operations around the world and et cetera, et cetera. But the absence of the perceived concealment of the relationship, I think, would improve things. I think the tenor of the reaction that I've seen publicly even is really driven by the perception that this is Alex Denner and by extension Biogen kind of trying to get something over on the public. And, and you know, that doesn't sit well with people. And again, you know, we've kind of um, hinted at, at sort of the boardroom dysfunction for this company, but it is quite a serious thing. I mean, going back to Carl Icahn's activist challenge of Biogen more than a decade ago, this is a board that people have said has been factionalized for many years. And this refreshment that people, uh, you know, shareholders and, and just the broader, you know, biotech community wanted to see from Biogen was a very legitimate thing. And, and and so that factionalization was largely broken down to Alex Denner on one side with some acolytes and Stelios Papadopoulos, the longtime chairman of Biogen on the other side. Stelios is leaving the board this year because he has reached the company's mandatory retirement age. So the news that Alex was leaving alongside two other board members who had been party to that kind of dysfunction was initially received really warmly. And so I, I, I agree with you, Meg, that like, or I, I rather, I endorse the, the notion that you put forward that even if they had nominated Langer with the proper disclosures and if it accompanied the fact that Stelios is going and Alex is going and Richard Mulligan is going, I do think that would have been perceived much better. But I mean, that's an opportunity that they missed. You know, one other element of this is who Susan Langer is. I mean, she has her own qualifications and her own experience in the biotech world. Her dad also happens to be Bob Langer, a very famous um, inventor and founder of biotech companies um, who most recently has been associated with Moderna um, as one of the founders of that company. Um, and so, of course, there's a lot of coverage of her connection to him in the biotech world. And I think this gets you into really thorny areas because you don't want to imply that a young woman like this has only accomplished what she's accomplished because of her family. Um, at the same time, you, it's hard to not acknowledge what I think some people would probably call, you know, biotech royalty. Bob Langer is, you know, one of the premier names in this world. So how does that play into all of this? It is, um, it's a sensitive topic, Meg. I think you're right. You know, I think we tried to report the story, not, you know, not trying to trash Susan Langer and not, you know, and, and trying to sort of present her as she is and, um, you know, we spoke to people who worked alongside her 
at Biogen at various times when she was there, um, who actually had very positive things to say about her. You know, said she was really intelligent. She did a great job. Um, you know, but with all that said, they just felt like, as Damien mentioned, that her, her experience and her qualifications to date really sort of fall short of the threshold that would be necessary to be a director at a company the size of Biogen. It's all sort of tangled up in this in this sort of mess right now. And looking forward, that mess, I guess, will come to a head on June 26th when, I mean, another, another messy aspect of this that we didn't mention, this disclosure uh, on Monday came two days before Biogen's scheduled annual shareholder meeting where shareholders were going to vote on the slate of candidates running for the board. That slate changed two days before a new person added to it. As a result, Biogen pushed back that vote until June 26th, which is to say that is when shareholders will vote on all of the board members um, who are standing for election, including Susan Langer. And I mean, I, I don't know which way that's going to go. There is a firm called PrimeCap, which is Biogen's largest shareholder. Um, we heard from someone familiar with the situation that PrimeCap did not look fondly upon the Langer nomination and may not um, vote in favor of her. They control about 10% of Biogen's shares. And Biogen's bylaws are such, this is kind of in the weeds, but they're such that if a shareholder doesn't vote, that vote is not counted in favor of management's recommendation, which is to say that Biogen needs to proactively convince the majority of its shareholders to vote in favor of the slate, including Susan Langer. The company's other large shareholders are mutual funds. Uh, we, or at least I, do not know what they are thinking about this, but that's the next step, I suppose, for Biogen on this rocky path toward re returning to some kind of normalcy is whatever people think about this situation, uh, it would be better for the company to not have its uh, proposed board member rejected by shareholders. Um, and so, you know, we can imagine that Biogen is working the phones for uh, the relevant voters and the relevant shareholding blocks to try to get this through. It's like succession. As someone straining not to compare reality to prestige television, I unfortunately have no choice but to admit that it is kind of like succession. Yeah. A very high-profile biotech startup founded by the same VC firm that started Moderna has been roiled by data integrity issues, forcing it to shelve two lead drug programs. Dozens of employees have left the company, including some top executives. The company is called Laronde, and it was founded to develop a new class of medicines based on a technology called endless RNA. This week, our stat colleague Allison DeAngelis, with an assist from the Boston Globe, published an eye-opening investigation into Laronde. Soon after the company raised $400 million in private financing, staffers started to question its foundational preclinical research. The data were too perfect and could not be replicated. Laurent blamed a single scientist for producing the suspect data, and she quietly left the company. But other staffers said pressure to produce positive data was intense. Executives dismissed problems, ignored concerns while pitching Laurent's vision to outside investors. Allison joins us now to talk about the Laron saga and her story and its broader implications. Allison, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Hey, thanks for having me. So why don't we start with some background on Laronde? And it's, I mean, I, for some reason, I keep trying to pronounce it with a French accent. But I did actually look up what it means. It means the round, right? Yeah. Anyway, and it's endless <laughs> RNA technology. So maybe explain what that 
is. Insiders, we understand, refer to the startup as Moderna 2.0. And I actually loved the quote from your story where somebody said it was supposed to be Moderna on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the endless RNA, you know, people inside of the company felt was kind of a step above um messenger RNA, which we all know is the the technology that Moderna has, you know, piloted and kind of brought forward with COVID vaccines. And essentially the big difference scientifically is that messenger RNA is a strand of RNA. And when you insert that strand into the body, it gets eaten up by enzymes that kind of clamp onto each end and, and chew away at it. And that means that it's really short-lived in the body. We're talking like a day or two, you know, maybe a couple of days um, of longevity. So LaRonde was launched to say, hey, is there a way that we can expand this life cycle of this RNA by actually taking those ends and tying it up into a circle so that those enzymes aren't as able to clamp on to the ends and kind of degrade the RNA? And that was something that, you know, People within the company had really high hopes for, you know, they thought that this would be applicable in, you know, lots of different types of diseases, even chronic diseases um, versus, you know, what we've seen so far with messenger RNA, which is, you know, so far it's been most applicable in vaccines. So, Allison, your story opens in February 2022 with the then CEO asking employees to gather for an all hands meeting. I know when when that happens, it's that we all get a little bit worried. Um, this was probably the first outward signs of trouble. So what did he tell the staff? Yeah. So in February 2022, um, the then CEO, Diego Morales, kind of joined everybody in the company together and said that they had uncovered what they called a bad assay um, and bad note-taking practices in the company. And at the time, he didn't specifically say you know, he kind of indicated that like one person was responsible. He didn't say who that person was. But from what I've heard from former employees, like people in the company kind of very quickly put two and two together about who might have been at the center of this issue. Because although this was kind of the first outward acknowledged sign of trouble, there had been concern and questions floating around Laurent for for almost a year prior to that um, around this one scientist and the data that she was producing. Right. So that scientist, the two and two that people put together, uh, was someone named Catherine Cifuentes Rojas. Why was her work so important within Laurent um, in the early stages of the company? Catherine had been brought in, you know, I've been told pretty early into the life cycle of Laurent and kind of quickly was producing like foundational work for the company. Her name is on, you know, a dozen or more patents um, that are either assigned to flagship or to Laurent directly. Um, and she had been working on some of the major kind of innovations of this so-called endless RNA, which was, you know, that they believed they could get uh, 30 days of protein production, um, which is, you know, big compared to that kind of one or two days that I, I mentioned with relation to vaccines. Um and that she could do it without a lipid nanoparticle. And, you know, if, if you, we all kind of think back to, you know, 2020 when we were all, you know, kind of informing the public or learning more about how messenger RNA worked, it needs to be delivered through these, these fatty uh, globules um, to kind of protect it. And, you know, Catherine was producing data that indicated that she could make it work without using 
those little, uh, you know, fatty globules. And um, that means, you know, easier to manufacture, possibly like a little bit less of an immune reaction risk. And um, she was, you know, kind of very integral in the scientists, in in the science, I should say, that Laurent was producing and was then pitching to outside investors. And it's so bonkers reading your story, just the progression of people trying to replicate her work and what they noticed about it that gave them pause. Maybe just sort of run us through as those red flags started to rise up, what were they? And then tell us about how management of the company responded. I'm really grateful to the former employees who spoke to me for this piece. Um, To give you an example, you know, one of the people I spoke to, a woman named Jane Van Hederen, uh, had worked at LaRond, you know, on the same team as Catherine um, and was there around, you know, late winter, early spring 2021 and was in meetings when Catherine was presenting this data where, you know, they were showing production of GLP-1, which is now the very popular target for obesity drugs like Wigovi and Munjaro. Um, And Catherine was presenting this data in lab meetings where she was showing this great, you know, 30-day progression of, you know, protein production. Um, But to Jane, what stood out as odd was that her charts um, would start at zero, which to Jane didn't make sense because you know it these these experiments were in mice and mice naturally produce their own GLP-1. So unless these are like very ill mice or there had been some sort of you know like retroactive background tweaking to the data they should the chart should start you know at some point on um on the axis when she goes to Catherine Catherine won't show her her raw data um and she eventually goes to their supervisor, the chief scientific officer at Laurent, um, who, instead of providing the raw data, um, criticized Jane. And that was kind of a, a reoccurring theme in Laurent that no one was able to see Catherine's raw data. People were struggling to replicate the science that she was producing. And um, oftentimes, there were, you know, kind of excuses or other reasons that were found to, you know, answer the question of like, why can't we reproduce the scientist's data? Now, as we know, in 2022, LaRonde executives admit that there was this bad assay, these, these, uh, you know, bad data sets and poor notes um, that, you know, had had been (laughs) floating around the company for, for many months. So you spoke to a, a lot of people during the reporting of the story. How did they describe Laurent's culture? And I wonder, you know, was there pressure to live up to this this hype that had, you know, that had kind of propelled the company forward? Or like, you know, when these companies sort of come out of stealth. Yeah, that was a theme that came up with several people that I spoke to, kind of throughout Laurent's life cycle. Was you know, when Laurent launched, they had a very big goal that they put out publicly of producing 100 new medicines in the next decade. And as anybody who has kind of been around biotech for a little while would know, that is a very lofty, ambitious goal. Um, And internally, you know, that was kind of the calling card. And, you know, people that I spoke to said that there was pressure to 
produce results and to produce really positive results. You know, they said that often the the staff were criticized. You know, the manufacturing staff came under a lot of fire um, at various points because they weren't producing enough material at high enough quality. Scientists um, who worked for the company said that they, you know, they would sometimes be criticized for, you know, any negative test result that came through. So there was definitely a pressure, you know, in the company um, that employees felt to kind of live up to the hype. Well, and then one thing that cuts across through your story, um, you know, which is so well reported with all of these people weighing in in such detail of how not only this, you know, one issue was playing out, but the sort of like macro pressure and how the company was run. At the same time, the leaders are out there trying to raise money. I mean, if you want to be Moderna 2.0, Moderna 1.0 was quite famous in its private stages, well, for a lot of things, but one of them was raising a lot of venture capital. So, how does that kind of cross cut with with what we've been talking about that at the same time, LaRonde is actively marketing itself to investors? Yeah, I know, you know, Damien, um, how, you know, successful Moderna was at raising money from venture capital folks. Um, at the time that these these questions and concerns were kind of floating around, you know, different groups of employees in LaRonde in kind of early to mid 2021, the company was then at a quite a big valuation. They were a blockbuster company, you know, valued over a billion dollars. And an internal slide deck that I, I was um, provided with um, by a source shows big plans as they were to, you know, launch and kind of put forward paperwork to begin clinical trials on all of these, you know, 100 medicines, um, you know, a, a really steady growth in their valuation um, was anticipated over the next several years. So, you know, financially, there were very big goals for this company. Um, you know, when this all kind of came to a head, um, the company was was valued at, you know, multiple billion dollars, um, according to that slide deck. So, it, it was a very similar, I think, ambition financially compared to Moderna. So at this point, now they've had to sort of go back to the drawing board and figure out what they're focusing on, given they've had these data issues that sort of underpinned everything they were doing or a lot of the things that they were doing. So your story notes, they still have a lot of funding, right? But now they're sort of like, you know, a company in search of a mission to apply that funding. It almost kind of reminds me of What's happening with EQRX, where they've got all this money, mm. uh, but their original goal is kind of erased or gone, or they have to sort of reset. But I, it just kind of makes me wonder, when you have a story like this, and you have the big name investors that you noted put tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into this company, do you expect there to be any kind of legal action toward this company? The legal action I I can't speak to yet. Um, investors have not cared to comment on what's happening with Laurent at this point. Um, you know, I think anything on my part would be speculation. But one thing I do know from you know, kind of covering the VC industry is that although like they they wrapped up this round at four hundred and forty million dollars, a lot of these those big financing rounds will be tranched, will kind of be given in installments. So. What I've heard is that LaRonde has, you know, kind of executives as this data issue kind of all unfolded in 2022, reassured employees that it's like we have enough money in the bank. You know, that's not an issue here. Um, how much money they have left in the bank is unknown. Um, they have in recent months 
laid off a group of employees that they had brought on for clinical manufacturing. The company now says that their their ambition is to launch a clinical trial within the next two years um, with new drug candidates. They ended up having, they shelved uh, two of their leading drug candidates um, as this all unfolded. So the question on employees' minds is is less about where the finances of the company are and more about what drugs do we have to develop? You know, what what drug programs are actually on our pipeline at this point? Which I think, Meg, is, is an appropriate uh, comparison to EQRX. So when the story came out on Monday, uh, you know, the reaction was like, well, basically it was like, oh, bleep. <laughs> People were obviously sharing it on social media, Twitter, uh, you know, it was really well read. One of the interesting things was how many biotech people really felt comfortable sharing your story publicly. You know, this is an industry that tends to close ranks in public. Um, you know, why do you think that is? Adam, I admire that you do your own bleep, your own bleep work on this podcast. I, I have to say, um, I'm just I'm just saving Teresa the the the, the, the extra work. <laughs> I think that um, to go back to your question, um, why people kind of call this out publicly, even people within biotech, is that we all know and are very aware of the skepticism of science that's emerged, you know, in the last couple of years, unfortunately, fostered by the pandemic and, you know, the anti-vax movement, um, the question around hype that, you know, kind of was fostered by the whole Theranos situation. I, I... I would suspect that people in the biotech industry are well aware of the fact that we we as an industry need to, you know, when these situations happen, not kind of bury it under the rug. We need to address it um, and, you know, hopefully show people, um, as, as Jane said at the end of my piece, you know, that this is this is not what biotech is. So pivoting back to the uh, speculation aspect of this, um, one thing that's kind of fascinating in this sort of like meta narrative of Laurent is in doing circular uh, RNA, as you mentioned, the theory is that they would have a better chance at, at turning RNA into a drug, basically, that could be administered for, for, to treat diseases um, than mRNA companies have had to this point. Moderna about 10 years ago, also said it would have 100 drugs in clinical trials and change the world, et cetera, et cetera. Cut to 10 years later, all of Moderna's therapeutic ideas for mRNA are still in phase one development. Now, obviously, that doesn't really matter to their business because they've made a gazillion dollars with mRNA used for a vaccine. But it did kind of strike me that, is there a potential tension there that Flagship, which founded Moderna, then went on to found a company called Laurent that, you know, maybe internally described as Moderna 2.0. But I think if I were at Moderna 1.0, I might perceive it as a competitor, not just scientifically in that they'd be going after, you know, kind of similar ideas, but also in a practical sense in Cambridge, Massachusetts, if I'm trying to hire mm -hmm. the best MR or the best RNA scientists, if I'm Moderna 1.0, I'm suddenly, you know, Moderna 2.0 is out there offering contracts. Not only is Moderna 2.0 out there in Cambridge trying to hire people, but there are other companies um, that are developing technology very, very similar to endless RNA called circular RNA. Very like similar idea, you know, tying RNA up into a, like an orb into a circle. Um, Orna Therapeutics is also based um, in Massachusetts and is once again, you know, they're looking for people with a background in RNA and messenger RNA. Um, so 
it's created quite an interesting landscape here in Cambridge. Um, you know, Orna has signed at this point. They have a, a pharma partnership um, that's in the works. That is something, you know, LaRonde tried to pursue at one point. They were in talks with Pfizer um, for a partnership. That partnership did not, uh, you know, follow through, um, did not, you know, that deal didn't get signed. But um, yeah, if you're an RNA scientist in, uh, you know, in and around Cambridge, uh, you're made in the shade. <laughs> you have a lot of job opportunities out there. Teresa's going to kill me, but I'm going to ask one last question because <laughs> we are going kind of long. So your mention of Pfizer there really reminded me of, you know, what was happening with Theranos where they were trying to make these partnerships with pharma companies. And in some cases, you know, the pharma companies declined to continue because they could tell something wasn't right or, you know, the data didn't look good to them. And it, it sounds like in, in this situation, you know, Pfizer, it, it's not clear exactly why Pfizer didn't go with the partnership here, but clearly they didn't. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, I think just stepping back, um, my question reading your story, one of them was, why was this a company at this point if they didn't have the science developed to the extent that they knew, you know, how this was going to work and that it was going to work? And maybe that's not a fair question because a lot of companies are founded at that stage. But what does this kind of say about this boom in VC-backed biotech, uh, particularly for companies at such early stages of science? Yeah, Meg, I think you kind of alluded to what would be my answer, which is that at the time that this company was getting started, you know, biotech was really on the upturn. And that there were many there are many companies that were being uh, founded and you know getting early stage financing between 2017 and, you know, 2021 that were pursuing really, really, really early stage science. And, you know, as we head into 2021, when LaRonde raised this, I mean, massive Series B round, we were seeing a lot of really big financings in the biotech industry, really, um, really hefty amounts of dollars um, being handed over to biotech companies. As we all know, as you know, has been kind of the central um, annoying theme of biotech over the last like 18 months, uh, that has cooled a bit. And I think that I would hope that the industry at large, you know, is is thinking about how biotech companies are structured and formed and like when you launch them, when you go to raise those big rounds of money. Um, hopefully, you know, we we as an industry will hold ourselves to really high standards there as as the years progress. Allison, it's a great story. And thanks for talking uh, with us about it. Uh, and if anyone wants to read that story who has not yet read, read that story, it is available, obviously, on the digital pages of statnews.com. Allison, thanks for joining us. Thanks. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you like your RNA in a straight line or in a circle. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.